Tuesday evening. Uh, football continues on. Big game tonight. I've actually run the odds, Dan, and I suspect podcast listeners will get this afterwards and so it can be wise after the fact. But uh, for Liverpool, um, you want a Leicester win tonight because if Leicester win, it's 82% for Liverpool to finish top four. Uh, a draw puts it at 70% and Chelsea wins at 68%. Um, so some numbers there to, to start the show with. It's really interesting, you know, because, um, you know, who would have thought a few weeks ago that Liverpool would still be in the mix is the truth. And the the inverse of that, which was, you know, up until a week ago, Chelsea were just flying and in form and in pole position for a lot. And what 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 a week does with a Arsenal loss and a Leicester FA Cup loss. And, you know, tonight is, you know, is almost as vital, I think, as the FA Cup game to a degree, obviously more important from a revenue generation perspective. Yeah, it'll be fascinating. It's, uh, you know, a real, you don't get these games that come around that often where it's just so much jeopardy involved in a league fixture. So really looking forward to it. Um, but also looking forward to this chat today. Um so the, the main headline yesterday was that um, Gary Neville and several others, several other leading football ex-players and pundits have, have gotten behind uh, this petition, which is uh, titled Introduce an Independent Regulator for Football in England by December 2021. Um, they want it to be part of this fan-led review that's being um, it's been announced, I think, last month um, that's kind of investigating or looking at our national game. Um, they've listed out a few things. Um, it's not been not been mega on detail, um, but that's what we want to dig into a little bit today. But they they feel there should be an independent regulator to act like a referee and, and safeguard our, our beautiful game impartially. One of their jobs, um, they haven't specified in too much other detail, but one of the jobs would be to uh, guard against an attempt at another Super League. Uh, and they draw parallels with with water companies, uh, energy providers, and the media, or having independent regulator. So, is uh, Dan? Give us. Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? What's um, is this even a feasible idea? What's your initial professional take on it? I love how you, you caveat it with professional because um, if a, if I'd been an, an amateur, I'm not sure. Yeah, the same. Um, you know, with, uh, from a fan perspective, how um, nuanced it is. But I think. You know, we've we've talked in and around this topic actually for a few weeks now, going back from Project Big Picture to the Super League to variance governance issues and everything else that comes with it. And I I think when a lot of people are saying we we the the, the UK football or English football needs an independent regulator, I I almost think sometimes it's the it's the outcome of a number of actually quite difficult questions to actually consider. And, and I say that because um, understood that there are lots of utilities and um, uh, different um, industries that have independent regulators. Um, in a way, football is actually a bit more complicated because it has various different siloed governance structures depending on particular competitions, leagues, uh, domestic, international and, and worldwide is the truth, each with a set of, as I mentioned, siloed structural um, frameworks. Um, and so I actually think the real question, and obviously it's come out of Project Big Picture and European Super League side of things, is... What is it that most fans want to see happen um, and what is it that most fans or particular stakeholders want to guard um, against? And it can be in lots of different ways is the truth. Um, 
you know, and you know, in preparation for this, we were we were talking about the the fan led review, um, uh, which has sort of terms of reference, which has been published, and now the uh, DCMS, one of the government agencies, is now departments is now, you know, consulting on a number of um, different elements of um, the 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 football industry and you know without wanting to go into too much detail but actually I think it's actually the detail which is important because at the moment everyone's saying we need an independent regulator we need an independent regulator the query in my mind is what do you need an independent regulator for so if I give you a few of the terms of reference one is to consider the ownership uh, the owners and directors tests and whether they're fit for purpose um, whether then um, there needs to be greater fan engagement and club engagement with each other whether um, f- club finances need to be scrutinised on a, a better and more regular basis, um, the, the flow of money down the pyramid, including solidarity payments, needs to be reconsidered, which um, is a very valid one, including broadcast revenues, comparing and contrasting governance structures in other countries, interventions around, I think, some very um, non-negotiable areas like club identity, um, club colours, geographical location, historical features like club badges, etc. And then just generally the relationship between all of the stakeholders, because as we said, what we're talking about now is the FA has some jurisdiction mainly over, over disciplinary and then the FA Cup and the international team. Um, the Premier League has jurisdiction over its members. The EFL uh, has jurisdiction over its members with its regulatory handbook. UEFA does for those clubs competing in European competition. And FIFA does for a lot of overarching global governance and transfer issues as well. So I think for a lot of people, the easy, the easy question is, yes, we need an independent regulator. But the difficult question that I haven't quite seen articulated to the same degree, and maybe we can dig into it, is why do you need an independent regulator? Yeah, and I think um, this gets to the heart of that. Lots of people have got lots of different issues with the modern game. A lot of them um, justifiable. So the Super League was, you know, was met with a kind of hugely visceral negative response, understandably, and um, and you know the the outcome of that is to is to feel like you know we need some kind of regulation on that specific issue. But then some areas are, are potentially more nuanced. Um, so if you take uh, you know, t- uh, I don't know, take the issue of uh, redistribution uh, as an example. Um, so a lot of people, you know, do b- do believe that money should be redistributed a- across the pyramid. Um, but equally, there are there's the interests of the clubs that have kind of you know been in the Premier League for a long period of time and, and want to be able to protect those revenues. And it's very difficult to come to some kind of objective you know, number as to how much money should be redistributed across the pyramid. Um, now, you could argue that's the point of regulators, they might come in and, um, and assess that. But I think um, the way that it's gotten to today is for the governing bodies, the leagues and so on to kind of work it out amongst themselves. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose the, the, the point that Neville and, and Co are making is that it hasn't worked. But one of the one of the great points you made, Dan, was that the Super League failed. Um, and maybe that's a sign of, to a degree, governance working in, in English football today. Exactly right. Um, you know, and I think it's always easy to look back in hindsight and say, that's work, that hasn't worked, that's an issue, things need to be addressed. And, and I think, to be fair, I'd add re- um, two things. One, one is, um, 
you know, the, the, the different football stakeholders when ESL raised its head actually came together to provide the ultimate leverage, which was, no, you're being kicked out of our leagues. Um, no, your players aren't going to be able to play in um, international competition. Um, and um, and all of the monies that you'd otherwise get might be taken away uh, and you might be banned and have nowhere else to go. Um, so you need to come back to the table, really, and give this another thought. Um, so, yeah, the, those frameworks, in a way, were pretty much fit for purpose to a degree. Now, what wasn't clear, and that's what something the Premier League are addressing at the moment, is what I think what's called the owner's charter. I think they've labelled it, which is going to come in over the summer, which is, you know, effectively a roadmap for if this happens again. Um, well, rather, they, they don't want it to happen again by owners signing up to pretty, particularly stringent undertakings, um, which set out pretty strong um, sanctions and ramifications if something like this rears its head publicly um, or otherwise. And I would really uh, recommend um, everybody watch um, Gary Neville's, I think it's on his YouTube channel, I can't remember what it's called, Overlap, I think it's called, isn't it, I think, where... Um, he actually interviews Richard Scudamore, the ex-chief exec, exec chairman of uh, of the Premier League up until a few years ago when Richard Masters took over. And they have a pretty um, uh, no-holds-barred discussion, Neville giving as good as he gets, but obviously Richard Scudamore, based on his you know incredible experience of having to deal with the six and seven top clubs and, and the rest to a degree as well. And... Scudamore arguing there is no need for independent regulation, that the regulatory framework is there, whether there needs to be, it needs to be beefed up and whether there are particular elements that need to be reconsidered is one thing. Because I think, Omar, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, really, what this, what independent regulator on the whole, on the hard issues are talking about, its introduction is, is the distribution of resources fair? Now, and, and that is obviously an incredibly subjective um, set of discussions which are taking have taken place continue to take place and I'd be really interested in your views because in the same way you know we've we potentially in the UK now got um, uh, an exemption to the tender process for the broadcasting rights whereby Sky, BT and Amazon are going to roll over their um, their coverage for a further three years which gives you know four years worth of comfort to the the clubs in exchange for greater solidarity payments. So the query is whether, you know, you just take those decisions from one negotiation into the power and hands of a so-called independent regulator to have exactly the same discussions uh, to come to, you know, value judgments on how the pyramid distribution and flow should actually work in practice. Yeah, I, I think it's a good framing of it. And if I, if I think of regulators in other industries are there to protect the consumer, I think is probably the best way of putting it. I'm talking here like I'm some kind of legal expert on this, but my understanding, you know, that they refer to utility companies and um, and media and um, having independent regulators. Uh, and my understanding is that they're there to, you know, ensure prices aren't fixed or, you know, kind of, um, you don't see massive price hikes, whatever it is. And I suppose the parallel here, well, it, it's it's kind of interesting. It's, you know, the perspective, I suppose, that they're coming from is that we need to protect the fan um, and the fan's kind of interest in the sport. Um, but one of the counter arguments that the clubs will have is that football's never been so popular, um, you know, and, and this was the argument for the, for the European Super League um, in many ways, but football's never been so popular, 
you know, we've got more fans than ever. We're produced, we're, we've got a better product than ever. You know, fans are safe in stadiums now. They, they weren't in the 1980s and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that would be the kind of response from, from clubs, I suspect, uh, to it. But the, the question of fairness is a really challenging one because it's, it's so subjective um, and it's so hard to, to know. And I think, um, you know, if, if you're, um, you know, there, there, there's certainly a legitimate argument to redistribute more money to, to the EFL, but then is that fair to, you know, to clubs in the Premier League who have been, um, you know, generating a lot of the, the value in the first place in English football? Where do you, where do you kind of draw the balance um, in between all that? So that's, yeah, I, as you say, I, as you can probably tell, I just don't have an answer to it. Um, but I think it's posed some interesting questions. Mm. The, the other, the the other argument, kind of against regulator or um, questioning regulators, the fact that there are rules in place today that just aren't enforced well enough. Um, why do you think that is? Um, and are there issues with the fact that the competition organisers are often the the regulators as well? Mm. I think I'm just going to mention maybe just one or two points on that first point about consumer, uh, an independent regulator being a consumer champion, if that's what you're 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 um, going from, which is actually a really interesting, you know, philosophical and practical point to make, because I think if that was the case, and we'll go on to the second point in just a second is, you know, I think then I think then that regulator starts thinking about questions around ticket pricing away support to ticket pricing for example there's something that's creeped uh, that cropped up and also i think you know subscription prices and broadcasting models um is the truth too is like you know one of the things that i know lots of supporters are relatively unhappy about is having to get you know premier a full range of premier league matches from three different um broadcasting or ott providers now granted um you can do it through amazon prime by taking out a 30 day trial or otherwise for you know a small amount of games but you know it's pretty um expensive to subscribe to sky and um and bt so i wonder whether you know i i don't think we'd ever get to the point of price capping or price regulation in the same way that um utilities are effectively essential um uh, facilities or essential um services um, but that that I think is something that's quite interesting. But again, I don't think a regulator is ever going to have the power to be able to enforce particular price mechanisms um, in too much ways. But, you know, with the agreement of the Premier League clubs, have they done before? Then, you know, you know, away match price tickets were, were capped. At, was it £30, if I remember correctly? Um, it might be 20 but 20, yeah. 20, yeah, so maybe 20 sorry. But... Yeah, and on to so just remind me what was the question on the uh, the go- um, governors uh, the regulators being the same as the competition. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily. Well, the, the, there's two questions there, I guess, ultimately, um, and there's two very good examples recently as to that issue. One is what's happening with Newcastle and the the takeover, the the fail, a current failed takeover, and the arbitration um, and litigation that's happening as a result of that. Because I think defenders for the status quo would argue that um, an independent um, set of decision makers either made a decision um, that meant that, um, at least on face value, um, the prospective owners of um, Newcastle were not necessarily going to pass the owners and directors test. 
Now, what then happens is um, there is then an independent arbitral panel that then sets, is set up in order to gauge whether that was correct or not. So in a way, they are fulfilling an independent um, uh, part of the, um, of the regulatory pie to a degree. So, I, and that's based on the EPL, um, you know, handbook, which runs to over 500 pages, which is a glorious read from a football lawyer's perspective. And the, the other side of things is, you know, you take UEFA financial fair play and cost controls and you, you look at the, the drafted regulations as they stand, which look pretty straightforward. Uh, and they're obviously a lot smaller in comparison with, with the Premier League handbook. But then you look at particular cases, PSG and Manchester City recently, where, you know, Man City were banned, banned was overturned, um, you know, evidence wasn't, didn't meet the particular thresholds, etc. And there's then, there then becomes a question between the regulator getting its regulations right and then being the prosecutor in uh, prosecuting uh, and trying to enforce its regulatory framework. And then there being an independent body CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, that is effectively the external regulator the, or the external arbitral body that is ruling on whether the actual um, the, the undertakings, the entity has actually bro- breached and broken the rules. So what I mean is, is that when you actually delve into the detail in both Newcastle, PSG, Man City and others, the actual body, the arbitral body is an independent body in the first place. So the the question I have is going back to first principles is again, let, let's go back to the point is why do, why do we need an independent um, uh, body, an independent regulator? And if it is, as you r- quite rightly say, maybe to c- champion the fan interest to a larger degree, making sure, for example, it might have an entrenched decision-making ability to ensure adherence, strict adherence to the football pyramid so that Clubs can't go off and start super leagues and um, break away from particular league structures, um, which obviously is to the detriment of a lot in, uh, in the football pyramid, but also championing, championing um, particular fan and, um, uh, cons- and consumer elements to do with ticket prices and subscriptions and the rest. You know, you have a regulator which is doing a few things, one for the fans, one for the fans making sure that the particular owners don't mess up their clubs and then ensuring maybe from a financial and regulatory and governance perspective that um, not everybody is doing everything for their own ingrained self-interest. And, you know, that means that it's quite a nuanced, a nuanced discussion to have in truth. Yeah, it really is. And, And I think as I think about this a bit more, I think the, I think it's kind of a yearning for football to kind of go back to what it was originally intended for, which was a sport for local communities, for people to enjoy, you know, for it to be sports and not business, you know, not an industry. Um, and, you know, it, it protecting sport for the interests of the fans, the fans being the kind of, as we discussed, the kind of consumer in this analogy. Um, and, somewhere along the way between football being created, if you like, you know, and formalised 100, 150 years ago. And now we've moved from it being a sport for not a business, something that's entertainment, but not, you know, designed to have some, some other kind of values within our society to, you know, 
something much more capitalist, something that is a business, um, and therefore, you know, something that is because it's a capitalist model now is is kind of able to take whatever form it likes, and you know, you wouldn't um, you wouldn't have I don't know I'm trying to think of other forms take music or um, art or whatever it is other forms of entertainment didn't start off with the same origins as football. Um, they were probably, I mean, I'm guessing here, um, you know, speculating a little bit, but, you know, they, they wouldn't be asked to have the same kind of regulator. Yeah, you've got censorship and all that kind of stuff, but you wouldn't have a, a regulator kind of trying to ensure that stories are being told or artworks being done to mm. the, for, for people to, you know, for the masses to enjoy or whatever it is, because they're kind of left to be their own industries. But I think the challenge is football has become its own thing that isn't what it used to be and that's why there's this kind of yearning for um for regulator to kind of protect its its original soul in many ways which which i understand the um the angst on that i think the challenge one of the big challenges here is that we're talking about an english football regulator and we the moment you start regulating the english football game you potentially undermine its competitive advantages so you know, t- take for example, if the regulator decided that we wanted more English players within um, English football and decided to limit the amount of players from 17 as it is today, international players in a senior squad to a 10, let's say. Um, that then, because, you know, it wants to be, a, a, you know, a sport that is celebrated by local people, by local communities and so on. Um, but then that undermines the ability of English clubs to compete against you know, French, Spanish, German, Italian clubs because they're able to recruit more freely in the marketplace. Um, and that's always... Look, look, there are regulatory systems in each of these countries that provide advantages or disadvantages. So, you know, um, I know, for example, Belgium and Netherlands have very different tax systems when it comes to foreign players and that gives the Belgian league an advantage over the over the Dutch league. Um, so those types of things do exist. And you've got a... Um, it looking kind of protecting the interests of English fans, but actually potentially undermining its competitive advantage versus um, versus other leagues. Yeah, and I think Omar, the other point that I was just thinking about there, um, which was um, yeah, which was a really interesting one. I thought, which was well, how how do you go about doing this in practice? Do do you like, for example, go and look at you know, how the German model is, the 50 plus one licensing that happens, which is pretty stringent and putting those requirements in place. Or is it actually, you know, you, talk, you talked about, um, you know, maybe the romance of the game in the past. Um, but, you know, I think the difference, as you've well articulated in lots of different um, pieces that you've written over, over the years, is, you know, there's that profit maximizing element um, in almost every other industry outside of sport. And then there's the glory maximizing element, um, which effectively means that cost control, unless there's quite strong regulatory forces in place, goes out the window um, because nobody is bothered about winning the, the profit league rather than the, the glory league. And, and in that sense, I can see why certain regulatory intervention is necessary in sport to ensure that not necessarily there's a level playing field, but that there is um, a set of cost controls in place to ensure that, um, you know, as we've seen in the past, maybe with Abramovich at particular times, and then 
Sheikh Mansour and others coming into the English game. Um, you know, at what point does fairness need to fall part squarely part of the 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 regulatory um, environment? And is it if you earn if you you know pay the most money uh, to players by way of wages, and then I know we're getting into a slightly different field here and uh, larger transfer fees. Should that just be allowed and everybody should be able to pay what they want um, full stop without any of those particular financial consequences? And we've seen those negative externalities as a result. But at the same time, again, sorry, going around in circles on this, but it's almost like, you know, those regulatory bodies have already put in place particular frameworks. Query whether they're fit for purpose is a different matter. Um, but there are those regulatory frameworks in place and then query whether actually that would be something that should be and could be down to an independent regulator to, to actually do and, um, and you know, where its remit actually lies. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a really good point, I think, on the frameworks being in place. Um, so financial fair play being one of them as an example and, and people talk about, you know, that, that's, a, that's a regulation that's in place and it is enforced um, you know, there's a lot of kind of cynicism about it. But if you look at if you look at the figures across European football, football clubs are a lot more, um, or there are a lot uh, fewer loss-making clubs in European football than there were 10 years ago. So, you know, it's clearly worked. Now, the question is whether that is the right regulation to have in the first place. And I think that's that's a, a, um, a discussion to be had in itself and, and would be a discussion under an independent regulator as to what... Um, what type of regulation you put in place around English or European or, or global football. So, yeah, it's. Um, it, I, I, I think what I would like to have seen from the proposal was a bit more of this is the problem. I, I think if um, we've kind of gotten into this idea uh, or this kind of thought experiment of um, a regulator being a consumer champion, I think if they'd gone under the, with that angle, I think it would have been really interesting to dig into, okay, well, what does that mean? What what are some of the ways that fans can be protected with um, by football? But you know, looking at the petition, it, it's just it feels really short on substance, and I, I think it feels like a very kind of populist move at this stage without really having any any substance. And what I'd hope is that the the fan led review into football governance will produce actually some kind of really substantive um, findings that um, will be considered by by the various bodies across football. Couldn't have said it better myself. Omar, on a more populist note, um, what do you think for final two Champions League places um, without your too much of a Liverpool bias on? Although, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I have that Liverpool bias on always. But um, yeah, w- what, what's your gut telling you or what's the data telling you? I know we've had the, we've had the numbers, but, you know, overall. I think it will be great uh, just for an ending of the season. It's been an awful season just from the fact that there's been no fans I've kind of got a little bit of football fatigue I think it'd be great if Chelsea win tonight to go to 67 points Liverpool win tomorrow go to 66 points Leicester on 66 points I think that'll just make it such a such an interesting final day um, so that's kind of what I'm rooting for um, and I think I think Liverpool and Chelsea will, will do it in the end It's not going to be good for my heart that's for sure No that's for sure Great to chat as always, mate. Cheers, Dan, and speak next week. Thanks, bye. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast, like, share and tag me.
If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.